Mormon Discussion Podcast is about helping Latter-day Saints like you lead with faith while tackling deeper, complex issues within Mormonism. All financial support goes directly towards keeping the podcast alive and supporting listeners like you. To support the podcast, please consider becoming a premium subscriber at mormondiscussionpodcast.org. Again, that's mormondiscussionpodcast, all one word, dot org. You can do this for as little as $1.50 a month or $12 a year. And this will also reward you by letting you listen to premium episodes like this one months before the general public has access. Thanks for listening. And now, on to what you've been waiting to hear. In our interviews with David Bakavoy, we talked about the historical Jesus. We talked about Bart Ehrman in some of the studies and research and books published that essentially tear down the divine Christ. In our interview with Brother Bakavoy, we talk at length about these criticisms, with David offering a middle way, a way to see some of the criticisms that are out there and still yet see the divine Christ. I also wanted to make sure that we offered a wide array and a spectrum of, of beliefs on this issue so that a member of the church could take in all the information and recognize that combining scholars like David Bakavoy and N.T. Wright, who a four-part series will follow here, that there are plenty of ways to reconcile scholars like the view of Bart Ehrman and others who tear down the divine Jesus and see that there is plenty of room for Christ to still be the Son of God and the Savior and Redeemer of the world. So now on to our four-part series of N.T. Wright, where he discusses the historical Jesus. One of the hardest things, I think, for us to get hold of as late Western persons trying to think about Jesus is a sense of living within a long story that was coming to a climax. One of the things that comes out of many, many of the Jewish writings of Jesus' day, not all of them, but many of them, was a sense of people living within the biblical narrative and the biblical narrative that had continued. If you take your Bible and look at the Old Testament, you'll discover that the Old Testament ends by pointing forward. The prophet Malachi is saying, something else is going to happen. We haven't got there yet. It hasn't all been complete. The Lord will suddenly come to his temple. I'll send you the prophet Elijah. And uh, there were different ways in which the biblical books of the Old Testament were put together in the, the, the Nascent canon of the ancient Israelites. And sometimes the canon ended with Chronicles, and Chronicles likewise is pointing forwards. We haven't got there yet. There are promises waiting to be fulfilled. And whichever way you put the canonical Old Testament together, uh, and whichever books were, were finally accepted as canonical by whichever date, it's always a story in search of an ending. We are not used to living like that except conceivably, personally, that we may tell ourselves stories about who we are and what we want to do with our lives and our vocation or ambition or whatever, so we may construct little stories for ourselves. But the idea of a grand narrative going back a couple of thousand years, stretching back, and you being part of it and it all going somewhere, something we find very difficult. And so we naturally 
prefer to make Jesus either a teacher who could have, in principle, taught what he taught at any time in history, and he just happened to be a first century Jew, but that was just an accident, or possibly a timeless savior figure who simply needed to die for the sins of the world. And he could have done that in any time. He could have done it in 15th century Russia, and it just happened to be first century Palestine. And so we prefer to make things timelessly true because the idea of living within this great narrative is very difficult for us to grasp. And yet when Jesus came into Galilee after John the Baptist had been put into prison, he said the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. It's now happening. This is the moment you've been waiting for. And actually those with long memories have been waiting for a very, very, very long time. The stories have been told generation after generation after generation. And they were stories about the creator God and his covenant people. Read the Psalms. If you want to know how Jews of any generation thought and prayed, the Psalms were regularly at the center of it. And those Psalms are talking about the God who made the world, who made the heavens and the earth, being Israel's God. And that's not just so that this God could have a special people who would be close to him out of all the rest of the nations of the earth, though sometimes it's expressed like that. It's so that this God could accomplish something through Israel. And when you look at the stories, you find them saying this in a variety of different ways. Genesis, about the call of Abraham through whom all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. Exodus, about um, Moses being told that your people are going to be a nation of priests for the, for the whole world. And then on into the prophets. Isaiah, uh, Israel is the light of the nations. And the great passages about the monarchy. Some people don't like those passages about the monarchy, but uh, in Psalm 72 and Psalm 89, and the stories about David and Solomon, they're saying that when God gives Israel a true king, then this true king will rule the whole world. He'll be the Lord of everything, not just of Israel. So there's always the sense of Israel's story stretching forwards and out into the world, not just to rule, but also to heal, because the rest of the world has a problem, and there are different analyses of the problem. But in various ways, they're saying, in effect, when God does for Israel what God is going to do for Israel, then the rest of the world is going to get in on the act. But unfortunately, in the period immediately before the time of Jesus, the last two or three centuries, that vision often gets submerged under the, the, the might of pagan empire, which is crushing the Jewish dream and national identity. The Babylonians had taken them into exile, and though they came back from exile, they were still ruled by other pagan nations, by Persia, by Greece, by Egypt, by Syria, and finally by Rome. But they always kept the dream going. And in book after book after book, they look back to the great things that God did in the old days, particularly to the Exodus, and in their symbolic life together, they celebrate the Passover and other great festivals which say that God did that for us when we were slaves in Egypt and we want him to do it again. And this time to do it completely and thoroughly once and for all. So they're looking back to the Exodus and looking on with hope to the fulfillment of this millennia-old story. And in the days of Jesus, there were plenty of people who told that story in terms of God himself becoming king. They were fed up with all the other kings they'd had. 
Think of the time after Herod the Great died in uh, the last few years BC, just around the time Jesus of Nazareth was born. They knew that this this Herod wasn't really a a true king of the Jews, but he'd ruled them with pretty well an iron fist, and now his sons had divided Herod's kingdom between them. And a revolutionary movement sprang up then and there, who said, now is the time, we've got rid of old Herod, we don't want his sons, we just want God alone to be king. And the revolt was put down brutally. And ten years later, when one of Herod's sons who'd been king of Judea was deposed, there was another revolution, another kingdom movement, another now it's time for God to be king. And each time the leaders of movements like that were telling the great story, they were tapping into this sense of a narrative, a biblical narrative going forward and reaching a climax. Maybe now is the moment for God to become king. And finally, that revolt was crushed by the Romans in AD 70. And then 65 years later, there was another one which ended in 135, and that was the last of those movements. And you can plot, and I've just given you a very brief conspectus here of them, you can plot several such movements, messianic movements, prophetic movements, kingdom movements, throughout this period, all of them telling the great long story and hoping and praying that it was going to come true in their movement here and now. And right in the middle of that, we've got Jesus of Nazareth coming, talking about the kingdom of God, saying, it's time now. It's going to happen. It's here. Are you ready? Watch out. It's bursting upon you. What was he talking about? It's one of the extraordinary things about contemporary Christianity, that though the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is the major theme of the Gospels in the teaching of Jesus, many Christians only have a very sketchy idea of what it's all about. Let's get rid of one completely wrong assumption before we go any further. If you open your Bibles at the New Testament, the first book that you come to is the Gospel of Matthew. And in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus' proclamation is not about the kingdom of God, but the kingdom of heaven. Because Matthew, a very Jewish writer, as they all were, but Matthew perhaps more uh, wearing his heart on his sleeve than some, uh, adopts the regular Jewish style of not saying the word God as often as as he might, and using the word heaven as a a cautious way of referring to God. But many Christians, for many generations, read a phrase like Jesus saying, if you do this and do that, you will enter the kingdom of heaven. And because many Christians have assumed that what Christianity is all about is going to heaven when you die, they have assumed that Jesus is saying, this is what you should do or should not do in order to go to heaven when you die. So that often people have then started to use the word kingdom to refer to heaven. And even in some of our contemporary Anglican liturgies, I don't know how many of you are Episcopalians, but in my Church of England, some of our liturgies now have taken to talking about the kingdom which the saints already enjoy, implying that the word kingdom is a direct reference to the life after death, the future state, whatever it is that the saints are already in. That is the way to misunderstand the Gospels from start to finish. Don't get me wrong, of course God has a wonderful future hope in store for us after death and ultimately in the resurrection. I spent the four lectures I gave here last year talking about that, and I don't think I will be accused of going soft on that hope. 
But in the Gospels, when Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven in Matthew, he is not talking about something that happens to people after they die. He's talking about something that God does in space-time history here and now. That's why at the heart of the prayer that Jesus gave to his followers, he taught them to pray, your kingdom come on earth as in heaven. So often when Christians have prayed that prayer, I think they've just thought of it as a sort of a temporary thing. Well, please make your rule be effective where I am and where my friends are and where my church is, but ultimately we'll go to heaven because that's so much nicer than earth is. And the answer is no, in the New Testament it works the other way. Another misunderstanding about the kingdom of God, which you've got to clear out of the way, is the idea which actually goes back to Albert Schweitzer, that when Jesus talked about the kingdom of God, he was talking about the end of the space-time universe. He wasn't. As many scholars have now said, I think of Ed Sanders or John Collins, many other great contemporary scholars of Judaism and early Christianity, that is not something that most Jews were expecting. There may have been some Jews who thought that the world was going to come to a shuddering end, but that is not actually part of the deal. When they used the language about the sun and the moon being darkened and the stars falling from heaven, some of you have heard me say this before, as my colleague John Barton in Oxford used to say in his lectures, when a first century Jew read a line which said the sun and the moon will be darkened and the stars will fall from heaven, they knew that the next line was, no, was not going to be the rest of the country will have scattered showers and sunny intervals. <laughs> this, this is not a primitive weather forecast or cosmic event in that sense forecast. The Jews of that day used cosmic sun, moon and stars language to talk about what we would call space-time political events. We have our metaphor systems as well. I remember a few years ago seeing a Time magazine front cover where there'd been, it was during the Clinton years, and there'd been some great event, some uh, midterm election or something which had happened, where uh, the, the Democrats had come off very badly, and the picture was of a, a, a gap opening up in the earth, a fissure from an earthquake, and Clinton caught halfway down, and the headline was, uh, small earthquake in Washington, one president hurt, or something like that. Now, of course, everybody knew that there had not been an actual earthquake in Washington. This was a metaphor for something, as we would say, earth-shattering in the political happenings of the day. The way they referred to that in first century Judaism was to use this, as we say, apocalyptic or cosmic language to invest space-time events with their actual significance. So those are two things to clear out of the way. What then was Jesus talking about? The language of the kingdom of God is the language about God becoming king here and now. This puzzles people because if you think for a moment, isn't it odd? Isn't God always king? Isn't God always ruling the world? Well, he is and he isn't. If God was really ruling the world, why is there so much pain and misery and suffering and sin and death still? And of course, that is a question for Christians to face as well. We'll perhaps get a bit to that tomorrow. 
So the answer is that God longs that his writ will run, that his justice and mercy will flow through the world. But because he's made the world the way it is, and because he's made human beings the way they are, God can't simply blast everything out of the way if it's in opposition to his will. God has chosen to work from within, which is why he chose Israel, which is why Israel had such a long and tortuous history as the people who bore the promise of God, but then became part of the problem themselves. And it's that promise-bearing, but also problem-bearing nature of Israel, which ultimately lands up with Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, on the cross, as we shall see tomorrow morning. But what Jesus was doing when he came into Galilee announcing the kingdom of God, was he was talking about, and more particularly he was doing, God's becoming king here and now. He was doing things which embodied God becoming king, and a good deal of his teaching was explaining what it was that he was doing. You will notice that quite a few of Jesus' parables are told not in the sense of sit down because I've got something to say to you, though some of them were like that too, but often they were told in answer to the question, why did you just do that? Or what did you mean when you did such and such? And he would say, well, once upon a time there was a person who. What was it that Jesus was doing? One of the very first things that people realized was happening, and I think now remarkably considering how much people used to resist this, but I think now most historians accept it, Jesus was doing remarkable healings. I don't know what you believe about miracles, about faith healing, about all of that stuff. There are huge debates about that. But it seems pretty clear, and even many scholars in the Jesus Seminar would agree, that Jesus must have been doing remarkable healings because that is obviously what attracted the crowds. And Jesus did attract crowds. He might have attracted crowds by remarkable teaching without healings, but it looks as though all the records go back to a Jesus who went about healing people. And he explained his healings in terms of God doing this new thing, this kingdom thing, in unexpected ways. Most people who told the kingdom story in the first century did not connect it with healings. But Jesus' way of doing the kingdom was about finding people where they were broken and battered and diseased and dying and bringing them through to a new and wholesome life. Jesus was embodying his belief that God was acting close up through him in real time and in real places and in real people's lives. The healings were not simply Jesus trying to be nice to people. They were symbols of what God was doing. Symbolic action, as we're starting to learn again, I think, in our own day, is one of the most powerful things there is. You try burning a flag on Capitol Hill, and you'll understand just how powerful symbolic action is, whoever's flag it is. Jesus' healings were basic, but had to be explained. And he told stories about what was going on. One of the best known but least understood stories that Jesus told is the one we call the parable of the sower or the parable of the soils. You'll know it in Mark 4 and the par parallels to that in Matthew and Luke. 
about the sower who went out to sow and he sows some seed here and it doesn't work and he sows some seed there and it doesn't work. He sows some seed over there and the birds take it away or it grows up but it's in the midst of thorns. But then he sows in good soil and it bears fruit and grows 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. And Jesus says those teasing words which come again and again, if you've got a good pair of ears, then listen. Why does he say that? You only say that if you've said something a bit cryptic, a bit teasing. I, I, I was asked by a journalist a couple of years ago after a lecture I gave in which I'd been talking about um, some of Jesus' teaching, not least in Mark 10, about divorce and so on. Um, uh, the journalist asked me what Jesus would have said about people who are divorced getting remarried. And I realized, fortunately in time, that he wasn't actually asking the question in the abstract. He was really asking me, codedly, whether I thought Prince Charles should be free to marry Camilla Parker Bowles. <laughs> so I gave him a cryptic answer and I said, if you have ears to hear, then hear. Because <laughs> I didn't want, you know, Canon of Westminster says either that Charles should or shouldn't. I mean, I, I can do without that, thank you. Actually, when Jesus was asked the question about divorce, it was a very similar situation. He was in Herod's territory. Why had John the Baptist got put in prison and had his head cut off? Because he'd said that Herod shouldn't have married his brother's wife. They asked Jesus about divorce to put him on the spot. And Jesus told a story about Genesis, about God's purpose, etc. And he did it in such a way that they couldn't at once go and tell Herod, this man's criticizing you. But nevertheless, the message, though cryptic, got through. A great deal in the Gospels is like that. It isn't religious teaching in the sense of somebody sitting you down saying, I've got 19 religious truths and here's the first and the second and the third. It's a cryptic announcement that God is doing something so explosive that if I spelt it out all at once, I'd probably get lynched. And I'd certainly have the secret police on my tail. And I think Jesus did have Herod's spies on his tail at various stages of his career. But the sower is a cryptic retelling of Israel's story with a dramatic conclusion. Some of the prophets had spoken about God sowing Israel again after the exile. I will sow you in your own land. It was a metaphor that they might well have cashed out that way. And some of the visionary writers of the Old Testament, think of Daniel, told stories about a succession of different kingdoms that had all gone wrong, and then finally God setting up the true kingdom which would never be shaken. Daniel 2 and Daniel 7 particularly. I think the parable of the sower plugs into all those worlds of thought. It's a way of telling the big story. It's not just a comment about what happens when people do evangelism. You know, and a lot of people don't get the message, but fortunately some do. No doubt that is true, but when Jesus was telling the story, if that's all that he meant, he wouldn't have needed to say, if you have ears, then hear. All he would have needed to say is, okay, you can wake up now, I've finished, because it would have been so boring. He was telling the cryptic story of Israel because see, they wanted to hear a story which said that when God acts, 
all God's people Israel will be vindicated and we will get rid of those evil Romans once and for all and then it will be the kingdom of God for all of us Jews. Jesus said it's not going to be like that. There's a lot of seed which God is sowing but which will go to waste. And a lot of the plants are going to be choked by thorns or the seed will be taken by birds. But there is some good seed and it will bear fruit. This is the new covenant. This is the time you've been waiting for. This is the kingdom of God. If they had ears to hear. And in the previous chapter in Mark 3, he spoke cryptically about what he was doing in terms of the time is coming, and the the time is here when the bridegroom is with you. And so we can't fast. Jesus was not fasting. They used to keep special fasting days to commemorate awful things that had happened in Israel's past. And Jesus and his followers weren't fasting on those days. And they said, why not? And he told this story about the bridegroom is with you. There will come a time when the bridegroom is taken away and then you'll fast. But at the moment, the bridegroom is with you. What is that doing? It's plugging in again to Israel's long story of how Yahweh and Israel, the bridegroom and the bride, would one day get it together again in the way that they hadn't. And Jesus is saying, wait a minute, don't you realize what's going on? Something is happening here and now. And likewise, in the midst of all those healings, we have the healings of people who are possessed with spirits of various sorts, unclean spirits. Uh, I'm not an expert in that field, but it seems to have been a major problem. It seems to have been focused on Jesus actually quite sharply that he was doing this. And again, people were puzzled what's going on and Jesus had to explain. So he was doing healings which were enacting the kingdom, embodying the kingdom. One of the other things he was doing was he was always having a party. He was always celebrating. He was always eating and drinking and making merry and often with the wrong sort of people. And when they asked why, again, he would explain it in stories. Jesus was there in the house with Matthew and with lots of tax collectors and people of ill repute. And he said, look here, you don't expect the doctor only to visit healthy people, do you? He was explaining what he was doing in terms of a kingdom movement, which was a healing story. Have you ever noticed how in Matthew's own gospel... I'm not saying anything definite about who wrote that gospel, but let's call it Matthew for the moment. In Matthew's own gospel, the story of Jesus eating with Matthew and the call of Matthew is in the midst of a string of healing miracles. You've got all these healing miracles, and right in the middle, you've got the call of Matthew, because that was a healing miracle too, as far as Matthew was concerned. And so in a passage like Luke 15, uh, it says Jesus was eating with tax collectors and sinners who were crowding there to hear him. And the Pharisees, who were not a sort of religious thought police, they were what we would call a pressure group, a very strong nationalist, ultra-religious pressure group. The Pharisees said, why is he doing this? And the implication is, he thinks he's some kind of a prophet. He thinks he's some kind of a leader. He thinks he's bringing in God's kingdom. If he really was, he wouldn't be hanging around with these people. And Jesus tells three stories about the lost coin and the lost sheep and the lost son. And the parable of the prodigal son is not simply a story about how God loves us and will always welcome us back. Of course it means that. 
And of course, whenever you behave like a prodigal, you need to know that there is a loving father waiting to welcome you back. But it's a much bigger story than that. It's a historical story. It's a story about, of any, face it, any story in first century Judaism about a father and a son is going to be a story about God and Israel. That comes with the territory of rabbinic and other stories. And if this son goes off in disgrace into a far country and loses it big time and is then astonishingly brought to his senses and repents and comes back home and is welcomed back, this is the story about Israel returning from exile. It's the story they wanted to hear. It's the story about God and Israel getting it back together again after all this wretched time they've been having. And the point of the story is, of course you have a party when that happens. It's a story designed to explain what it was that Jesus was doing. Wouldn't it be nice if the church today was doing the kingdom in such a way that people said, why are you doing that? And we found that we had to tell some parables. Jesus tells forgiveness stories. Jesus tells healing stories. And the stories themselves are stories which break open people's ways of looking at the world and God and Israel so that there's a chink of light and the kingdom can come into their hearts and minds as well as to their bodies in healing or their bodies through feasting. Jesus does other symbolic things. He's, he's always doing things which we can only understand symbolically. Jesus calls the twelve. Now, in the first century, anyone doing kingdom things who goes to a crowd of people who are listening to him you wouldn't even need to say a word if you just beckoned 12 of them and took them off somewhere everybody would know what that meant this is the reconstitution of the people of God this is a symbolic sign that we are remaking Israel the 12 tribes there haven't been 12 tribes for nearly a thousand years well 700 anyway since 10 of them got lost and there's only Judah and Benjamin and the Levites left. Jesus is calling the twelve as a symbol of the restoration of Israel. And again people ask him, why are you doing this with this group? And one point, when his mother and his brothers come and are standing outside the house, and people say, your mother and brothers are there. Let me tell you, if somebody was suddenly to come to me here and say we've got your mother on the phone from England I would tell you a lot to talk amongst yourselves and I would go and talk to my mum on the phones it must be important Jesus says who are my mother and my brother he looks around anyone who does God's will in other words anyone who's sitting here and listening to my kingdom message is my mother and my sister and my brother now that's a pretty scandalous thing for anyone to say about his mother and brother all that we know about Jewish family life means it's extremely scandalous. Jew nice Jewish boys don't say that sort of thing. <laughs> this is the redrawn family, the reconstituted Israel, reconstituted around Jesus himself. Notice, Jesus is not number one of the twelve. He is the one who calls the twelve into being. Decode the symbols. They're very powerful.
Jesus does things on the Sabbath. Now, people, particularly in the Western Protestant tradition, get all the wrong idea about the Sabbath and think that it was simply a matter of legalism, a matter that there were all these Sabbath laws and you had to keep them in order to earn God's favor. No, the Sabbath was a gift of God's love. I hope you in your Christian pilgrimage know about the gift of God's love in the form of days and times of rest and refreshment. The Sabbath was a, a delight. Of course, no doubt some people got bored on the Sabbath, just like no doubt when I was a kid in Britain in the 1950s and nothing happened except church on Sundays, we always got rather bored by about four o'clock in the afternoon. There just wasn't a whole, you weren't even allowed to play in the street. How times have changed. But the Sabbath was meant to be a day of delight and rest. And if you worked your socks off for six days, you jolly well enjoyed your Sabbaths, I'll tell you. But Jesus did things on the Sabbath which were clearly breaking that taboo. Because he then explained them, not in terms of you've got a nasty legalistic system and I'm giving you a nice grace system instead but in terms of the urgency and the priority of his own kingdom work. He even, on one occasion, in order to explain it, talked about something that King David had done, which overrode existing laws in the, in the sanctuary of the time. In other words, claiming implicitly for himself that he had the same kind of authority that God had given to David. And David, of course, was the first great king, the man after God's own heart, for all that he went wrong in all sorts of other ways. Throughout it all, these parables, and I just mentioned a few of them, but as you know, there are dozens of them, were ways of reimagining the great story of God and Israel and inviting people to make it their own. And hence, in the midst of it all, Jesus wasn't just calling 12. He was summoning anyone and everyone would follow him. He didn't tell everyone to down tools and follow him on the road. It would have been impossible for many of his hearers to do that. They were bound to remain where they were on their farms or in their villages or whatever. But he gave them a way of life which was both like the way of life that Israel had had and yet subtly different. The Sermon on the Mount is not a timeless code of ethics. It is a challenge to Israel to be Israel because Jesus is here and around him it's going to happen. It's a challenge to discover the inner meaning of God's law, not as a burden but as a delight. And to discover in the middle of it just how subversive God can be. The Sermon on the Mount begins with those beatitudes where all the wrong people get blessed. Blessed are the poor, blessed are the meek, blessed are the humble, blessed are the mourners, blessed are the hungry, and so on. Very counterintuitive. Jesus is saying, God is turning everything upside down. And then he goes on addressing some of the very specific issues that they had. How do you cope when you've got foreign pagan soldiers or administrators or bureaucrats ruling you, what happens when there's a soldier who comes through town who has the legal right to force you to carry his pack for a mile? Most Jews of Jesus' day, especially if they believed in God's coming kingdom, would have said, well, while you're about it, see if you can pinch his dagger and then stab him with it. Jesus said, no, go the second mile. Now, that's passed into common parlance, going the second mile, being a good person, a nice friendly neighbor, that's fine. But it had a very specific historical referent, doing something outrageously different to show that Israel's God, your God, the true God, is not a God of petty vengeance, but a God of lavish grace. 
Jesus wanted his followers to do the kingdom like he was doing the kingdom. To do things that were so outrageously different, embodying God's love and God's reaching out to the wider world that people would stare in amazement and say, why on earth would you do that? And in the middle of it, Jesus talked about God doing something to you through this kingdom thing that he was doing. And one of the many images that he talked about was the renewed heart. This is not a new thing in Christianity. It's there in Deuteronomy. It's there in Jeremiah. It's one of the great longings of Old Testament uh, poets and prophets that God would change people's hearts. They realize it's no good simply trying to follow the way of God or doing what God wants if you're just struggling but your heart's not in it. And so they say there will come a time when God will write his law on people's hearts. Back to that divorce passage. I know this is a very painful and difficult subject for many people in the contemporary Western world. Uh, one of my own friends I just met last week, I just discovered his, he is heading that way, and it's all very tragic. I don't want to tread on anyone's toes here. But Mark 10, the passage I referred to before, where Jesus is asked about divorce. The question is put... What about divorce? And Jesus comes back with Genesis and says, this is what God said in the beginning, man and woman, and there it is. And they say, so why did Moses give us that command in Deuteronomy about how to do the divorce? Jesus says, Moses gave you that command because of your hardness of heart. But from the beginning, it was not so. What on earth does that mean? Is Jesus saying, you're still hard-hearted, but I'm now going to give you a, a, a stricter law, which you won't be able to keep because you're hard-hearted? It can only mean that Jesus dares to believe that he has a cure for hardness of heart. I know that takes often years of pastoral work and practice, and it's not going to be easy, and it doesn't always play out the way we would want, but that is the promise. And it's there as well in the controversy in Mark chapter 7 about the food laws. When Jesus is, is put on the spot about what to eat and cleanliness and all of that, it's a complicated passage. But at the end of it, the punchline is that it isn't what you eat or what you don't eat that makes you clean or unclean. Now, this is fighting talk, by the way. Within living memory in Judaism and within a longer folk memory particularly, Jews had been martyred, horribly martyred, for refusing to eat pork. It was one of the things that pagan rulers did to Jews to make them compromise, was to force them to eat pork. And if they refused, they could be killed. And there were stories, vivid, gory stories told about martyrs who died rather than eat pork because that was God's law. And so when Jesus says what matters is what comes out of the heart, not what goes into the mouth, we think, oh yes, well of course, how silly, who cares about stupid old food taboos. Get your first century spectacles on and look at the scene. This is extraordinary fighting talk. So powerful that in fact Jesus says it very cryptically. And then he leaves the crowd and goes into the house. And only then, when the disciples and he are by themselves away from the crowd, does he explain it in more detail. Jesus is talking about a renewal of the heart, which will be the reality towards which the purity laws, the food laws, the old taboos were pointing. And in the middle of it all, Jesus seems to be talking about 
God doing the great jubilee thing which Israel had sometimes talked about but so far as we know never actually done. Think back if your mind includes this passage to Daniel chapter 9. In Daniel chapter 9, Daniel in exile in Babylon, whenever the story is written this is the fictive scenario, Daniel is in exile in Babylon and he knows that the exile has gone on for 70 years and he knows that God has promised Jeremiah that 70 years will see the end of exile. So Daniel prays this great prayer and says, come on, it's 70 years, it's time we got out of Babylon. And the angel says to Daniel, actually, the exile isn't going to be 70 years, it'll be 70 times 7. That's how long it'll take. Now, that's a very important passage because Jews of Jesus' day were calculating their 490 years and all the rest of it. And when do we start and when's that going to be? And so looking for the liberation then. What does Jesus say in Matthew 18 when somebody says, how often should my brother sin against me and I have to forgive him as many as seven times? Jesus says, no, not seven times, but 70 times seven. What's he saying? He's saying that forgiveness, reconciliation, redemption, release from debts is happening here and now and you've got to work it out. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. That's what the literal translation of that bit of the Lord's Prayer is. It's the most extraordinary thing to put in the middle of a prayer. Have you ever thought how odd it is that in the middle of this prayer, you have to say to God, and by the way, we're doing it as well. And the one thing that comes is forgiveness. Forgiveness of debts, forgiveness of sins, both. And Jesus wanted his community to live like that. Has it ever occurred to you why the early church sold their property and made sure that they looked after those who had need. Jesus was doing the kingdom and explaining it cryptically and he wanted his followers to be doing the kingdom as well. And in the middle of it, Jesus had to warn people about what would happen if they didn't. Because like many other Jews of the first century, Jesus could see that the Israel of his day was heading for disaster, was on a collision course with Rome in particular. That all these movements of liberation, all these other dreams of kingdom would lead Israel more and more to provoke Rome until eventually Rome would say enough is enough. In fact, it very nearly happened just ooh, a decade or so after Jesus' day when the mad emperor Caligula wanted to put up a huge statue of himself in the temple in Jerusalem to prove that he had to be worshipped and these silly Jews were out of line. Fortunately, Caligula died just before the order was due to be implemented and the governors on the spot, phew, quickly rescinded it and they didn't have to go that route. But it was only another 25 years before the balloon went up and then it happened. Jesus warned about coming judgment. Later Christian tradition, with Dante's Inferno from, seen from one eye and Michelangelo's pictures of hell seen from another, has misunderstood what Jesus was talking about. I'm not saying that there isn't such a thing as a post-mortem judgment. There is. But Jesus was talking about a much more sharp-edged one. Think about Luke 13. 
when they come and say to Jesus, do you know what's just happened? Pilate, the governor, has killed some people right in the temple courts while they were offering sacrifice. He's, he's slashed them, had his soldiers slash them down with their swords. And Jesus said, well, do you think they were worse sinners than all the other Galileans who were offering sacrifice in the temple? He says, no. Unless you repent, you will all perish in the same way. And then he says, well, what about those 18 who were killed when the Tower of Siloam, that Silwan just down the hill from the temple, when the Tower of Siloam fell and crushed them, were they worse sinners than everyone else who lived in Jerusalem? Said, no, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. What's this likewise thing? Is he talking about people frying in hell when they die? No, of course not. He's saying that unless you turn from your headlong flight into your sort of kingdom movement, your violent way of resisting the Gentiles instead of being the light of the world to the Gentiles, unless you turn from that, Roman swords in the temple and falling buildings in Jerusalem will be the death of you. Read the stories in Josephus. If it's a nice sunny day and you've got a strong stomach, they're tough things. It happened. A generation after Jesus said. And when Jesus talks about this, this word Gehenna, talks about people going to Gehenna, and we translate it as hell or Hades or whatever, Gehenna was the smoldering rubbish tip down at the, I was going to say the far right-hand end of Jerusalem, because in my mind's eye that's from where I can see it, the, the, southeast, the southwest corner of the old city of Jerusalem. Last time I was in Jerusalem, there's a wonderful restaurant just across the valley from Gehenna, and they were having a firework display in Gehenna. I thought, how appropriate. <laughs> we sat there having dinner watching fireworks in Gehenna. <laughs> the warning about Gehenna is that unless the majority of Israel who are going this way turn back and go Jesus' way, the way of reconciliation, the way of being the light to the world, the way of fulfilling God's vocation for Israel, the whole city will turn into a smoldering extension of its own garbage heap. Today you can visit the burnt house that they've still got in Jerusalem and you can see the charred embers from when Titus's legions burnt the city a generation after Jesus' day. And this goes on into those dire warnings in Mark 13 and parallels about uh, the, 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 the coming destruction of Jerusalem. And in and through it all, Jesus is saying, but the seed may go to waste here and there. It may be choked, the birds may take it away. But God is sowing good seed and it will grow and flourish. And he's constantly saying, God will vindicate me and my people. That's a huge claim. We might say it's an arrogant claim. We so hate the idea of somebody giving themselves airs. Jesus says it again and again. God will vindicate his people. God will rescue them. God will save them. So what is Jesus saying about the kingdom? This has been a whistle-stop tour through just a very few points in what could have been a much longer presentation, but let me try and sum it up. What is Jesus saying about the kingdom? There are all those cryptic sayings, the kingdom of God is at hand, the kingdom of God is breaking in, and the violent are trying to get in on the act. The kingdom of God is within your grasp, Luke 17, 21. If I, by the finger of God, cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. It's really here. Now, is the kingdom of God here? Critics from that day to this have said, look out of the window. Of course it isn't here. 
Jesus seems to be saying that there is a sense in which it's here and there is another sense in which it will be here very soon. Of course, if by the kingdom of God we mean that everybody in the world is now behaving according to justice and peace and living in harmony with one another, then of course that hasn't happened. But if by the kingdom of God you mean, as Jesus seems to have meant, that God's saving sovereignty was let loose in the world in a radical new way and nothing will ever be the same again, then that's precisely what Jesus was talking about. Jesus belongs within the first century world of Judaism as a prophet of the kingdom of God. But his way of doing it and saying it and teaching it and living it was radical, doubly radical. All kingdom of God language was a shot across the bows to Herod and the Sadducees and Caesar and everybody else. But this was different. They were used to revolutionary movements. But Jesus was a double revolutionary. He wasn't underlining, uh, under, uh, underwriting the political agendas of the revolutionaries or even of the moderate Pharisees. He wasn't underwriting anyone else's movement. He was doing it differently. And he was on a collision course, therefore, not only with Rome, as any kingdom man would have been, not only with Herod, as any would-be Jewish leader would have been, but also with the revolutionaries themselves who didn't like what he was doing. Who did he think he was? What did he think he was up to? The word Messiah comes to our lips. The phrase Son of God comes to our minds. What did he think he was going to do? What does that all mean? This is where we're going to be coming back to tomorrow morning. But already we can see the beginning of the answers to those questions that we asked with those six things we had in the first lecture. Let, let me just run down them as I finish. What happens if we put Jesus back into this first century context. What do we say to the secularist who is so puzzled that we would be taking Jesus seriously at all? We say actually there is good historically grounded reason to believe that Jesus of Nazareth not only existed but did announce and embody God's kingdom in the way that the gospels say he did. Even though of course the church has often misunderstood those gospels. What do we say to the popular religious movements that want simply to discover who they really are through uh, new pop psychology or studying who they were in a previous life and, and now they've been reincarnated or whatever? We say, you will find out who you really are when you look and see who Jesus really is and you will discover that you are made in God's image and that your deepest identity is not a spark of light inside you, but that you are now called to belong to Jesus, to follow him, and that you can have a renewed heart too that way. What do we say to the people who say, since the Holocaust we can't talk about uh, Christianity in the way we used to because it seems anti-Jewish? We have to say, yes, Jesus was Jewish. All his early followers were Jewish. And we in the non-Jewish world of Christianity have often misunderstood Jesus in early Christianity by forgetting that. But at the same time, Jesus the Jew went to the cross as the king of the Jews. And that means that we can't simply say, oh, we'll fit Jesus into Judaism. Jesus must not only be comprehensible as a Jew, he must be crucifiable. That's one of the historical criteria. And that 
sends all sorts of different questions out which we have to look at. What do we say to those who say that all our big imperial stories are just oppressive? We say that at the heart of the Jesus story is a way of telling God's story and the world's story which isn't oppressive because it's the story of love. It's a word we haven't mentioned yet tonight, but that's at the heart of the kingdom message as we'll see tomorrow. And what do we say to those who are reconstructing the world of the New Testament according to a fantasy which serves certain agendas today? We say, no, let's go back to the historically grounded kingdom message of Jesus. And what do we say to those Christians who say they prefer the Jesus that they've always heard about since Sunday school and they worship in the liturgy and so on? I think we say we need to rediscover this Jesus. Otherwise, we might make him in our own image. We will discover, as we do so historically, that he is always strange and always familiar. Remember that story in John 20, after the resurrection, when the disciples... Sorry, John 21, after the resurrection, when the disciples see this figure on the shore and they don't know that it's Jesus. And then he tells them where to fish and they do and they catch all these fish. And then they come ashore and there is Jesus cooking breakfast. And John says this, this extraordinary line. He says, none of them dared ask him, who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. That is my experience as I study the history of Jesus. Again and again I think this is very strange. This is not how I'd been taught it before. And yet the closer I come, I don't even want to ask because I know it's him. That doesn't prove that my historical theories are right. It is merely my testimony as a Christian who's also a historian. Tuesday.